right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our December episode of Rediscover the Winds. As usual, I am Stevie from the Du Bois Museum. I'm Randy from the Lander Museum. And I'm Amy from the Riverton Museum. And today, I think what we're going to do is each take a turn and share some holiday stories that we found from each of our respective locations. Um, and we'll give you a little bit of taste of maybe what the holidays were like out in Wyoming back in the days of yore. <laughs> uh, anyone want to start? Uh, sure. I've got a story about the first Christmas tree in Lander. Um, so I'm going to do a little setup uh, for the story here because it's important you know who this lady was who left this account. Um, <coughs> Amelia Hall uh, was one of the earliest pioneers in the Lander Valley. She came to Wyoming in 1878 after marrying Robert Hall, who was the telegraph operator at Camp Stambon near South Pass. She was actually from Pennsylvania originally, met Hall out east and married him. She took the train to Green River and then a 150-mile stagecoach ride over the mountains to Camp Stambaugh, where he was stationed. Camp Stambaugh was decommissioned not long after she arrived, so she and her husband Robert moved to the Lander Valley that spring. She recalled her first view of Lander and said, As I came over the hill, there were a few log and adobe houses on each side of Main Street, less than 30 in all. There was a post office, two stores, three saloons, the cottage hotel, a brewery, and an old log building with a dirt roof used as a schoolhouse. No trees anywhere except on the banks of the river. No churches, ministers, doctors. The only doctor was the army doctor at Camp Brown, which at that point had moved to Fort Washakie. Uh, the area of Fort Washakie. Amelia became the school teacher in the log cabin. She was the third teacher that the lander had, and she had 40 students, ages 5 to 16. She writes that in Christmas 1878, we gave the first entertainment ever given in Lander and had the first Christmas tree ever in Lander. Only a few of the children had ever seen a Christmas tree. Some of the older girls in the school collected money to trim the tree and buy presents for the children. So much money was given to them that we hardly knew how to spend it all. We trimmed the tree and bought every child and baby a present. Then, to spend the rest of the money, we gave a present to every bachelor in Lander and a bag of candy to each married man. Anyone in town could bring presents for his friends, and under those trees were hundreds of dollars of presents. There were silver-mounted spurs, bridles, riding gloves, jewelry, and dozens of silk handkerchiefs, a yard square at cost of six to eight dollars each. They were the best that could be bought at Amoretti's store. The entertainment put on was Mrs. Jarley's Waxworks, very popular at the time. And I had to look up what Mrs. Jarley's Waxworks was because I had never heard of it before. But apparently it was a series of pantomimes based on a Charles Dickens book. And in the pantomime, actors or people portrayed historical figures who came to life when touched. It was very popular with amateur groups across the country to perform as a fundraiser. And uh, some of the characters play portrayed were George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Daniel Boone. And so clearly, I assume probably more than, more than a few of the children were performing these uh, pieces as the entertainment. But it sounds like it was quite a party <laughs> in 1878. And, you know, Lander's population may, may have been about 200 people at that point, maybe 300 at the most. Um, so uh, it was a town, but it was a pretty small town. Uh, but uh, I thought that was pr a pretty neat little story with the, the Christmas tree and the fact that the children, many of the children had never seen a Christmas tree before. 
Uh, growing up in the wilds of Wyoming, it probably wasn't a super high priority. But Amelia was from, uh, you know, the <laughs> metropolis of Pennsylvania, and uh, and was a you know exposed to a lot of things that a lot of uh, lander folks uh, hadn't been at that time. So uh, I can just imagine, you know, a, a country kid seeing this Christmas tree with all the decorations and all these presents, and you know, having the party and everything be, being quite an affair for uh, a small rural community in uh, 1878. Sounds pretty cool. For sure, yeah. Uh, you want to go next, Amy? Alrighty. Um, well, I want to give a wee bit of a disclaimer before I start with my story. I am not from the Riverton or even Wyoming, so I didn't really know of any Christmas tall tales that had to do with Riverton, um, but I did try and poll some of our part-time workers and volunteers at the museum to see if I could come up with some things for this podcast, but they didn't have any ideas for me either. If you have some that are from the Riverton area, we can we can stop by the museum perhaps and uh, relay them to me. So maybe next year during the Christmas season, <laughs> we can have some Riverton-related uh, Christmas stories. But I decided to talk about a mythological creature that I heard a lot about um, when I was growing up. Um, I grew up in an area that had a lot of Norwegian-American immigrants, so I heard the story of the Nyssa quite often in my childhood. Now, the Nyssa is a mythological creature from Scandinavian folklore. Um, it's also got the name the Tomta or Tantu um, from other Scandinavian countries. It's a three-foot-tall um, gnome um, that dresses in simple farmer's garb with a cap and tunic. And the cap is usually depicted um, in a red color, uh, but it can also be depicted with other colorful hats. Um, it also has a long beard and white hair, much like a garden gnome. Um, this uh, Nyssa is an unseen protective gnome who secretly lives in someone's house and protects their house. It also is known to attract good fortune and drive away evil. It helps with the farm work and the chores. Um, the origin of the Nyssa is unknown, but one idea that has been thrown out was uh, that the Nyssa would be the soul of the first inhabitor of the farm uh, who created it, also known as the Tomt, um, and dwells in the burial mounds on the farm's property. Every Christmas Eve, um, the Nyssa uh, needs to be paid for their uh, protection of the household with a buttery bowl of porridge. So on Christmas Eve, uh, you would give that uh, payment, but it at the time it was called Yule or Midwinter Fest because Christianity was not in Norway at the time. Um, and if that payment was not given to the Nyssa, it would leave the farm or house or engage in mischief. <laughs> Some uh, mischievous things that it would do would be tying cows' tails together turning objects out upside down, and breaking things in your household. <laughs> um, another important thing to note is that the butter in the porridge needs to be on the top. There's a tale um, that a farmer put the butter on the bottom of the porridge, but when the Nyssa began to eat the porridge, he found that the butter was missing. So he was filled with rage and killed the cows resting in the <laughs> barn. But as he thus became hungry again, he went back and finished the porridge and found the butter at the bottom of the bowl. <laughs> Full of grief, um, the Nyssa hurried to search the lands for another farmer with an identical cow and replaced that cow with the other uh, <laughs> cow. <laughs> uh, 
Um, Anissa is also very easily offended. So a farmer who has Anissa on their farm should not swear. They should not be cruel to the farm animals. And if they are insulted, again, Anissa will play tricks uh, on the farmer. For example, hiding things, injuring or killing the livestock, um, and bringing misfortune to the farm. After Christianization in Norway, which happened about the mid-11th century, like most folkloric creatures, the Nyssa was demonized and began to be connected with the devil. So belief in the Nyssa uh, slowly died down. However, um, in the middle of the 19th century, the legend was still out there, and it uh, became known as the Yule Nyssa, and it had transformed into a mythological creature that would knock on people's doors and hand out presents pretty similar to Santa Claus. So, yeah, that is the Nyssa. Wow, that's interesting. I've never heard that one before. I was going to say, for such a tiny little creature, it has a lot of rage. <laughs> yes, it does, yeah. And I want to know what happened to the farmer whose cow got taken. That is a good question. I don't think uh, that uh, part of the story is told. I'm sure he was rather upset, though. Well, and it's, and it's again, interesting. Other, other countries and other cultures have very different versions of Christmas stories. Some things match up and some things don't. Uh, but it is interesting to when you hear stories like that from other places. Mm -hmm. you know, we're so used to our mythology about Christmas that hearing in other countries is pretty interesting. And, again, that's a new one on me. So, yeah, not uh, ever heard of that one. So, cool. Well, speaking of Christmas traditions or trying to keep traditions alive, I have a story from um, Dubois. Uh, in, during World War II, there was a POW camp um, outside of Dubois called Camp Dubois. And uh, in, the Christmas, in Christmas of 1944, um, the American military personnel and POWs were all snowed in, as the story goes, to their camp um, for several days before Christmas, with more than I've hear I've heard three feet of snow. Um, so the men at the camp decided they were going to put together a Christmas Eve program to keep themselves entertained and keep their spirits up, and it was going to be held in the POW mess hall, which got decorated with all sorts of wreaths and greenery that were collected from the forest. The POW camp cooks apparently started rationing sugar early on so that they would have enough to use in the weeks before Christmas to bake Christmas cookies and cakes. Um, so that's how they made their, their sweets. And the POWs worked late into the night printing and typing programs and rehearsing music, songs, and skits. So there was a Christmas program put on that lasted about two hours. There was Christmas music with a small orchestra and singing led by a quintet that included the entire audience. So it was generally, <laughs> it sounds like it was a giant Christmas sing-along. Um, the POWs in shared special songs, poems, and verse. And um, there was a, a translator present. Uh, U.S. Army serviceman um, Frederick Schwartz. He had been born and raised in Germany, but moved to the U.S. when he was 18, and because these were German POWs, a lot of them did not necessarily speak English or speak the best English, so Schwartz served as the translator, um, and he also wore a POW uniform and performed as St. Nicholas, um, acting as the master of ceremonies for the program, keeping the show lively and the prisoners laughing. Um, but the best gift for the prisoners was apparently that the mail from their families in Germany had been collected and stockpiled and had not been handed out to anybody until Christmas Eve when everybody got many letters from their family that they could sit and open after all the festivities were, were done. Wow. 
That's a cool story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. it sounds like a, I mean, it sounds like a nice little way to celebrate Christmas. Well, if you're all snowed in together up in the mountains in two boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not much you can do otherwise. POWs and uh, et cetera. Well, speaking of the World War, staying with the World War II theme, uh, one of the things I found in our collection that I thought was really very poignant were a series of uh, Christmas cards that were sent to the States from the South Pacific. Uh, this is in 1940s, and uh, Eugene Barrett, who was a uh, soldier in uh, the U.S. Uh, Marines, sent uh, uh, these three Christmas cards to his family. And what's interesting about these is they are very simple photographs of uh, p- South Pacific scenes, palm trees, the ocean, a uh, hut that's made out of looks like palm trees that, that's uh, ter- obviously been turned into a church. And they're very simple uh, black and white images. And on the front, he signs, Your Son Gene. And on the back is stamped uh, on each one of them, approved by the U.S. Army Examiner. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a huge amount of censorship, uh, oh, on yeah. especially on the front lines of, of the soldiers and their correspondence. So clearly, I think these were obviously produced by the military for the soldiers to sign and send. And uh, literally the only thing written on them is your son, Gene. Uh, And they each say Merry Christmas, season's greetings, things like that. But, uh, you know, it's again, it doesn't say where in the South Pacific Gene was stationed at this point. I believe this is 43. Uh, But uh, he fought in many battles across the islands of the Pacific. We've got a whole list of his... uh, engagements at the museum and many pictures from him um but this struck me as very uh, very poignant that this poor guy is you know in this literally in the jungles in the south pacific uh and it's christmas time and he probably and he's from wyoming so he's probably wondering where's the snow and where's the <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's you know sitting around in his uh probably uh, shirtless o- o- on the beach you know dreaming about going home for Christmas. So again, I thought that was a very poignant thing. You know, cr- people celebrate Christmas of the POWs obviously mm-hmm. did, the soldiers in World War II and World War One, and and so on did, but uh, these are very, uh, very moving, I thought, for uh, uh, the servicemen to be sending home s- at least something to the to the family right. uh, from from the South Pacific. So, uh, so that's my ad- addition to the World War II <laughs> story. Hmm. Well, I have um, another story from Dubois. It's a little bit before World War II. It takes place during the Depression. Um, and I'm just going to read it because it's um, maybe two or three paragraphs. It's in Esther Mockler's book, 80 Miles from a Doctor, when she is describing her first Christmas in Dubois. And she starts by saying, Most of our gifts had to come by mail. When we first arrived in Dubois, I was warned about Oscar Stringer, the postmaster. He was ornery, unaccommodating, and went by the book. The window slammed down at precisely 6 o'clock, customers in line or not. Oscar was lanky and 6 feet tall. He had a habit of wrinkling his long nose and sniffling when under duress. His slowness and his Arkansas drawl and idioms annoyed the natives. He wore his clothes until threadbare, which irked the citizens. My first encounter with Oscar was at Christmas time. I had ordered a custom-built saddle for Frank, her husband. Uh, The week before Christmas, I asked Oscar every day if the saddle had arrived. His answer was always, nope. One day before Christmas, I arrived at the post office just as Oscar slammed down the window. I peeked through the letter slot and saw the saddle on the floor. I said, Oscar, I see the saddle on the floor. May I have it, please? The post office is closed. 
But Oscar, it's Christmas Eve and the saddle is Frank's present for me. Won't you please let me have it? After a long silence, the post office side door opened. Oscar stuck his head out the door and said in a low voice, I'll give you the saddle if you promise never to tell anyone. I promise, Oscar. Thank you, thank you. Oscar took the saddle to the side street, set it down, and opened the door. He looked up and down the street and, when satisfied that no one was in sight, put the saddle into the car. The day after Christmas, I took him a box of homemade candy and cookies as a thank you. When I handed it to him, he was overcome, speechless. Oscar became a loyal friend all the days of his life. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So that one just kind of made me laugh because I had read in like some other archival materials that Oscar was kind of a character. (laughs) So um, I think it was just kind of funny that he even checked the streets to make sure no one around saw him being nice, (laughs) lest he get a reputation for being helpful. That's right. (laughs) Well, and again, you know, even today living in... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wyoming, most of our stuff comes from other places, uh, unless you make it here. Uh, and there are plenty of people that do, but uh, Christmas presents and birthday presents are often, we're often waiting for Amazon <laughs> oh, nowadays <I> <laughs> instead of, uh, uh, or the post office or whoever is coming through. So uh, mm. so I guess uh, we have another. Well, I, have a, I have another, I have a Christmas poem, actually. Oh, okay, great. Uh, so we can do that. So this is, again, another lander lady, another pioneer uh, lady, and I'll give you a little bit of background of her uh, before I read a, her poem. And some people may have heard of Eva Lamberson. Uh, she is best known as the Poetess Laureate of Lander. <laughs> How she got that title, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, we have many, uh, many of her poems in our collection at the museum. Uh, she wasn't just a poet, though. Uh, in her obituary, it read, she gave sincere devotion to the task of building the Lander Valley. So a very prominent lady. She was a teacher, uh, one of the many uh, teachers in the one-room schoolhouses of Lander, a nurse, a historian, and a poet. Another lady born in Pennsylvania. She arrived in Lander in 1884, coming by wagon all Mm. the way from Pennsylvania. Um, And again, it's another thing that I think a lot of people don't realize, that even after the railroad came to Wyoming, it wasn't into Lander in 1884 yet, but but uh, a lot of people still used the Oregon Trail. Well, oh, yeah. well until, you know, a matter of fact, my grandmother came across the Oregon Trail in 1890. She was born on the Oregon Trail in the, in the Dakota Territory. Um, so uh, it wasn't unheard of for people to be traveling by wagon all the way from Pennsylvania, for example. Um, at, when she got to Lander, the only place that she and her husband could live was a tiny cabin on Table Mountain, which is the big flat top mountain south of Lander. Uh, and that cabin is actually on the museum grounds now, so you can actually visit the cabin uh, where uh, Eva uh, lived. <coughs> she became very active in the community and was the main person uh, behind the creation of the Fremont County Fair. Before she came to town, there was no fair in this hmm. county. She pretty much, and according to the newspapers, single-handedly <laughs> made the fair a reality. Uh, she was very interested in horticulture and, uh, and uh, again, got the fair going. She wrote poetry in her spare time, and she published several volumes, including a whole series of Christmas poems. I'm only going to read one of them. Uh, uh, and, uh, but if you do want to read more of her poetry, we have uh, quite a bit of it at the museum. And this one is called The Children's Day. Christmas morning, young eyes shine, young cheeks glow like ruddy wine, childish voices ring with glee, happy children, blessed are ye. Scattered all about them lie, gifts and toys to charm the eye, treasures long desired are here, 
things they've wanted for a year. Mirth and pleasure all day long, how their voices ring in song, how their merry laughter swells like the chiming Christmas bells. Though no thought or care have they, save the moment's pleasant play, let no harsh word damp their joy, let no frown their mirth destroy. For he who taught in Galilee, who walked among the swelling sea, in blessing children o'er and o'er, hath honored childhood evermore. And so, when winter snows are here, the glory of the passing year, in memory of the Christ child's birth, the child today is Lord of Earth. So, one of Eva's many poems, and again, a whole series of Christmas poems. So Very nice. So, yeah, again... Kids have always enjoyed their presents when uh, <laughs> uh, Christmas rolled around. Oh, yeah, so. of course. And I don't know about you guys. In, in my family, at least uh, my growing up family, uh, we always did prisons on Christmas Eve. I don't know about you guys, because a lot of people, and when my when I married my wife, <laughs> that changed because they did Chris presents on Christmas Day, and there was not going to be any Christmas Eve presents happening, so I, I made the switch. I was like, it's not that big a deal to me personally, but I, it's interesting. I talked to a lot of people who are like, Christmas Eve, who opens presents? Well, my family did. <laughs> so. All right. Yeah, my family also did kind of a mix. We opened, We chose one present on Christmas Eve to open, and then the rest would be saved, so we would always choose the biggest one, <laughs> the most mysterious. Yeah. Uh, my sisters and I, we would get um, pajamas on Christmas Eve that we opened, even though we always knew it was going to be pajamas, so that we could take like a bath, put on nice clean pajamas, and go to sleep and wait for uh, Santa. Okay. But we only ever got to open half of our presents on Christmas Day, and then we had to save the other half for um, like a month later when Ukrainian Christmas rolled around, oh. and we would meet with the rest of our family um, and celebrate Christmas in January, Ukrainian style. So, wow, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, which was always kind of a bummer when I was a kid. I mean, yes, two Christmases, but it also always meant kind of parsing things <laughs> things out. And every now and then our my parents would just be like, um, if you open up that one, you also have to open this one <laughs> so that we didn't end up with just half a toy or yeah. the toy and no batteries. <laughs> Um, so I think we have one, maybe one last story left, um, which, you know, I'm going to let Randy tell because he seems to have um, a little bit better of a handle on some of the dates. Um, but this one, of course, involves the infamous Butch Cassidy because I feel like we can't have a podcast in Wyoming without talking about Butch Cassidy at least once pretty uh, much every episode. Seems like it comes up a lot. <laughs> but, you know, again, he was certainly a presence in this county and, uh, uh, <laughs> a lot of the stories are, as far as we can tell, uh, just that. The, he lived here. There's no denying that. He was uh, quite well regarded by most people that uh, leave accounts of him. Uh, the few people that don't particularly appreciate him were some of the larger ranchers because uh, he did have a habit of borrowing horses. <laughs> 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 and never giving them back, uh, but uh, but but my most accounts he was uh, he was considered quite uh, quite a charming uh, uh, fellow, and this story I I just think it's an interesting story, and I'd heard it for years until I uh, started putting together this podcast and doing a little digging a little deeper. I just took it at face value, right? That I'm, it actually happened, right? I had heard rumors of it because it happens, or you know, supposedly yeah. happened close to Dubois, but yeah. I. I did not know it was maybe not fact. Well, and so so um, most of my research I'm taking from a, a gentleman named Mike Bell, who has written several 
I, I would probably call them definitive books on the history of Butch Cassidy, and uh, and he has really done his research. We have his books at the museum mm-hmm. if you're ever interested in either purchasing them or, or uh, reading them. But he, he uh, has spent a lot of time digging into these, <laughs> into these stories. So the story is Christmas in 1889, Butch Cassidy is spending it with the Simpson family who were living uh, on the banks of the... Uh, Oh, I can't really, I don't know, didn't write down the name of the river. On Jakey's Fork. Jakey's Fork up in, the, yeah, there you go. <laughs> they were living on the Jakey's Fork uh, just outside of Dubois. And he was friends with the family and was spending Christmas with them. And there happened to be an influenza epidemic going on. And the Simpsons' daughter was deathly ill with influenza. Butch saddled up his horse. Uh, and there was, a, of course, a blizzard going Obviously, on. Obviously, it can't and, be winter uh, in Wyoming without it. And <laughs> he rode uh, all the way to Fort Washakie, to the, to the, which is the only doctor in the entire county, the uh, army doctor at Fort Washakie, got medicine and rode all the way back, a uh, 120-mile round trip with the medicine and saved the Simpsons' daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the story. And it's a great story. It's a wonderful story. You really want it to be true. But unfortunately, the reality doesn't seem to match up with the, uh, with the story. And uh, there are a couple of clues uh, right away. One, that there is no record of an influenza outbreak in Fremont County <laughs> at that time in 1889. Not any re- mention of it in any of the newspapers. And you would think, again, in a community with newspapers, there would be mention of people being sick, and there is no mention of that whatsoever. That's one issue with this thing. The other issue is, uh, at that time, in 1889, Maggie Simpson wasn't even in Wyoming. Uh, (laughs) She wasn't even married to the, she was a Burnett at that point, she wasn't even married into the Simpson family. She did come here later on and get married and live uh, (laughs) on the Jakey's Fork, but not in 1889. She didn't come here until 18. 93 so many years later uh, so so a couple of things right there that don't don't jive right away the other thing that is interesting is that uh, there actually was an influenza outbreak in Fremont County in 1892 okay. which at that point Butch Cassidy had long since left Fremont County but an acquaintance of his called LZ Lay who is a name you'll hear associated with Butch Cassidy a lot uh, rode from Dubois uh, to Fort Washakie to get a doctor for Agnes Stagner to help deliver her baby. So Mike Bell's belief, and I think it's probably an accurate one, is over time these stories sort of just kind of got mixed together and morphed and people didn't remember this detail. And it's always great to stick Butch Cassidy in a story because Mm -hmm. by that point he was... famous (laughs) famous <laughs> he was a big deal bad guy so uh so i suspect very strongly that the lz lay story which is documented in okay. local newspapers uh <laughs> happened but over time the kind of the stories kind of got mixed together mm. um so it's it's interesting and, th- and there's nothing wrong with people you know wanting to create a good story you know and again our memories do play tricks with us as we get older uh but uh, uh like a lot of too good to be true stories. I'm afraid the Butch Cassidy Mercy Ride <laughs> is probably just a story. That doesn't mean he wasn't willing to do something like that or mm-hmm. wasn't a great guy or wasn't a friend of the Simpsons because he was just not that particular <laughs> part of the Simpson family. <laughs> right. So uh, so again, it, it 
nice, cool Christmas story. But again, like the uh, Nissi, Nissa? Nissa, yeah. Nissa, probably just a story. So, yeah. But that doesn't mean... You don't have to. You can believe it if you want. <laughs> I was saying, kind of a bummer. I, you know, I had found that one one Wyoming historian, if anyone knows who this historian is, says that um, it cannot be said that anyone brightened up at the site of Al Hainer, but Cassidy brought the spirit of frolic with him. Um, so apparently, he was a welcomed Christmas guest slash yeah, dinner he, guest wherever he went. He, he was, <laughs> yeah, he was a fixture in the Lander saloons <laughs> and uh, gambling houses, and was a. Uh, uh, even the local sheriffs, sheriffs plural, because he was here long enough to see several different sheriffs, all found him to be a very charming, fun guy. Uh, the, the very famous story, which has been documented, is that when he was finally convicted of horse th- theft in Wyoming and sent to the penitentiary, uh, the sheriff at the time, who was Charlie Stow, uh, took him to Laramie to put him in the penitentiary, which is where the penitentiary was at that point. And rode the whole way with which not in handcuffs, which right, said, yeah. I will not run away. And uh, Sheriff Stow said, I believe you. And when he got to Laramie, the <laughs> warden at the penitentiary said, what's this man doing uh, doing uh, unchained? And uh, Butch said, well, it's uh, allegedly said. Now, this part of the story, I, I don't know if it's been 100% verified, but allegedly said, honor among thieves, I guess. Hmm. Uh, but he did ride the whole way with Charlie Stow. Uh, unhandcuffed and turned himself in at the penitentiary when he probably could have easily gotten away in the, what, 100, 200 and some mile journey oh, I'm sure. by horse mm-hmm. all, all the way to Laramie. So, huh. so Merry Christmas. I was going to say, I mean, <laughs> I know that I have no plans this Christmas for any kind of uh, heroic rides anywhere on a horse, let alone in a blizzard. What are you guys up to? Uh, I think like a lot of people, I'm staying pretty close to home. Same, yeah. Uh, Christmas for my family has been unfortunately canceled due to certain circumstances. So Right. Yeah, and again, my family's here, so I will be spending it with my kids and my wife. And uh, I just stopped at the on the way th- over here at the uh, uh, meat market in Hudson, and we're going to do Beef Wellington for Ooh, Christmas. And so, yes, yeah, so I said, well, why not do something different? So that's what our, our plans are. So, And I don't even have to cook it. That's even better. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I will say that I did find um, an old article from 1927 um, published on December 24th that advises that a good a good housewife who really wants to like impress her dinner guests should serve the following for Christmas dinner. Oysters on the half shell or fruit cocktail, clam broth, wafers, roast turkey, giblet sauce, cranberry jelly, bread stuffing, candied sweet potatoes, creamed onions. I'm not entirely sure what those are. Bread and butter, spiced peaches, hearts of celery, pumpkin pie, hot mince pie, ice cream, nuts and candies, cake, and coffee. So, wow. um, I don't see Beef Wellington on there. <laughs> 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 um, I am kind of intrigued by this creamed onions idea. Well, creamed onions, well, yeah, I've had creamed onions before. It's basically just pureed onions in a cream sauce. Uh, really? With a little spice. Yeah, it's, there. it's onion soup. Essentially, okay. okay. <laughs> so, uh, some people make it chunkier. I'm at, at least my mother used to make it. She didn't puree them entirely. There would be chunks of onions floating around. Okay, it's good. Hmm. So, all right. Well, I will keep that in mind when I'm <laughs> making this feast for one. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so I guess we'll, we'll wrap up. I know, um, Du Bois, we usually have a holiday open house on December 5th. 
this year we are going to be doing things a little bit differently. So we will be having um, what we're calling the five days of Christmas starting December 1st. We are going to be having um, different items on sale. Stay tuned to our social media to find out what's going to be on sale when. Um, but everything from stuffed animals to DVDs to naturalist guides, um, everything will be 20% off at some point or the other. And um, fri uh, Saturday, uh, December 5th, is going to be still free admission day. Um, we're just not going to be serving beverages or snacks or anything for people to eat as they look around. Um, and we do have holiday bird feeder kits available for pre-order. So if you would like one, they make great gifts. They're really fun and kind of adorable. Um, just go ahead and call the museum or um, send us an email and we will go ahead and reserve them for you. It's $3 a kit. It comes with the bird seed, the um, gelatin, the cookie cutter, the string, the straw, everything you need to make it. Um, and you can make them into fun little shapes like Christmas trees and stars. <laughs> Yeah, so the Riverton Museum will also be having a Christmas open house. Um, it'll be on the 12th of December um, from 10 to 4 p.m. Um, there will be free admission to the museum. Um, and from 2 to 4 on that day, we'll also have children's toys available for creation um, made of wood. Um, they will. The price of those toys will be from 2 to $10, depending on their difficulty level. So... And the Lander Museum, uh, we normally we have what we call our old-fashioned open Christmas, which we're not doing this year, obviously, uh, and that's a event with food and snacks and all kinds of fun stuff. But <laughs> we're not doing that this year. Uh, we are doing a, a, a free day. Uh, I can't remember the date off the top of my head, but check our social media. I, t I think it's the 12th, too. I'm pretty sure. I'll have to double-check that. Uh, we do have, uh, we just opened on November 1st, our newest um, uh, art exhibit, uh, Joseph, the paintings of Joseph Shirley, which are portraits of Native Americans from the Wind River Reservation, uh, done in you know, roughly the 1915 through 1920. Very striking portraits of many members of the Arapaho, the Shoshone tribes. There are also some Crow and Lakota portraits. Uh, it's an exhibit on loan to us from the Montana Historical Society, uh, really wonderful exhibit. We're very excited to have it and encourage people to come out and see it. It's, mm. uh, it's the art that you're not going to get a chance to see otherwise because it's going back into the collection up in Montana and won't be on display again. Um, but uh, that will be up for the through next fall, but if, you, uh, if you're looking for something to do, it's sure. a really nice exhibit, very pretty, and uh, the paintings are really wonderful. So I encourage you to come out and check them out. Sounds interesting. Okay, great. Well, I hope everybody listening to us has a safe and happy holiday, and we will check back in with you in 2021. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right, see you guys later. And before we go, we just want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Mick Pryor, a financial advisor with Edward Jones. Long-term goals mean long-term plans, so let Mick Pryor, your Edward Jones financial advisor, help you accomplish these goals. Call or stop in and make sure you let them know you heard about them on Rediscover the Winds.